Switching is not passive, it's a weapon. So whether you're steering the pick and roll, physically switching under, physically switching up, you're doing that physically. Hello and welcome to the Lockdown Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jagacki, and today we have a special guest, Detroit Pistons assistant coach, Brandon Bailey. Coach Bailey has an incredible defensive mind and has been a part of some incredible defensive teams. Previously an assistant coach for the Boston Celtics, a G League head coach for the Maine Red Claws, and even has experience at the college level. I'm very excited to have him on the podcast. Coach Bailey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. You know, I've been a big fan of you and the content you've been putting out and everything like that, your book and videos online and everything. So I really appreciate it for the opportunity. Appreciate that, Coach. You've definitely been a huge advocate yourself when it comes to defensive development with your clinics and talks. And I'm interested if you've always been drawn to the defensive end or if that's something you've kind of picked up during your journey. Um, I'd say it was probably a concept I picked up on my journey. You know, I was a coach's son. I wasn't necessarily the uh, most athletic person in the world. Um, My dad certainly uh, stressed the importance of defense. Um, But, you know, coach's sons, you know, I just always wanted to shoot the ball. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the guys, especially in Boston, the the head coaches I worked for, the assistant coaches I worked for, you know, especially the ones I worked closely with, you know, they were usually the defensive coordinators. Brad is, you know, uh, stresses defense a lot. Um, so just working for those guys kind of really helped me and developed my niche and, you know, end up being the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, you've definitely worked with some great defensive minds, Brad Stevens with the Celtics and now joining Dwayne Casey with the Pistons. Congratulations, coach. I guess I should have started out with that. But I'm interested if you could give us a snapshot of behind the scenes of what an NBA staff is doing right now in preparation for that training camp and the start of the season. Yeah, I think it starts, you know, immediately after your season is done, you know, different problem areas you may have had last season, um, any type of adjustments that you need to make based on your system that could help with those problem areas, you know, and then obviously working with the players, you know, um, guys that are coming in and out of the facility, trying to help them get better in any way that they can. And then, you know, preparing training camp, you know, schedules down, you know, kind of progression of how you want things done, you know, in that first week. And then, you know, what does that progression look like in terms of adding maybe more advanced stuff, you know, down the line? So there's a lot of different things uh, going on, but, you know, that's probably about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the Division One level, we can work with our athletes almost year round in a practice capacity. But at different levels, uh, Division Three at the high school level and at the NBA level, you kind of had these shortened like training camp periods to prepare your team, you know, for the season. What's kind of, from a defensive mindset, are you looking at as a successful training camp? What are you looking to get in, install-wise, rep-out-wise? What are you looking for a successful training camp? I think, number one, just you're looking to to establish your culture of what you want defensively, you know, the mindset that you want, and trying to sell them on what you're doing is best for them and the team, and then is your base system in. You know, there's a lot of different wrinkles you can do you know, defensively, there's a lot of different ways to be successful defensively. But I think mainly, you know, is your base system in, is it established, and is your mindset 
you know, established heading into the year. Yeah. One of the things I've always struggled with is if you're head coach or, you know, you want to have a secondary defense like a press, like a, a junk defense or a zone, how do you kind of balance that install wise versus having your base system solid and, and having that up to speed? I think it depends on your team and your players, like their experience level, how long they've been together. For example, with us in Detroit right now, you know, we're a relatively young group. So, you know, we may do some different things throughout the year, but especially early, we want to make sure that we're really establishing ourselves and our base and being really good at one thing. You know, it's the whole adage of doer of many, master of none. You know, we want to be very good at maybe one, two or three different things. You know, whereas with Boston, you know, we were together for a really, really long time. I think that was one of the things that made us pretty good defensively outside of obviously the talent of our players, which is how simplistic and consistent our defense was. But maybe, you know, by like the end in training camp, you're maybe adding some things different just to keep the guys maybe a little bit more engaged. They were used to what our system was. They had a good understanding of what we were trying to do. So it was easier for us to, you know, kind of put maybe a new thing in here, a new thing in there, a new idea, this and that. Yeah, and some of those teams you're talking about with the Celtics, I mean, three years in a row ranked, you know, second, sixth, and fourth in defensive efficiency in the league. So, obviously, tremendous uh, seasons there. Once the season kind of hits, is it just a constant evaluation of your defensive system, constant tweaking, adjustments? Has there ever been a, a season you've been a part of that you've had major change defensively throughout the season? You've realized this just hasn't been working, or is it constant kind of little adjustments and tweaks? Yeah, I'd say it was just maybe more little things, you know, and it's not necessarily tweaks, more so just we're not doing good in this area. We're not, you know, maybe executing this type of technique the way we want to. Um, we have to be better in this. I, you know, we rarely change even game to game what we do defensively. It's more so about just doing what we do really, really well. And, you know, that's based on, you know, studying our players in the, pre in the preseason or offseason, studying what works in the league. And, again, like I wouldn't say, you know, heading into a game, we're not completely changing our, our system from game to game. It's more so about are we doing it really well and then do we have the right personnel out there? If we're going to change anything in a given game, it may be more so matchup-based than anything else. I'd say that's the same throughout the year you know you know we're rarely changing what necessarily our system is and what we're doing I'm, I'm interested to dive into that even more as as someone who's always preparing for opponents especially on the defensive side what goes into an NBA scout with those short turnarounds and how much information are you really looking to give the guys yeah I think number one you know for us we would look at what actions the other team is running and then you know personnel and things like that but you know, the actions are mainly to look at, you know, not necessarily like, okay, we're going to guard this like this, and we're going to guard this like that. It's mainly like, this is what our system or what does our system look like against, you know, their offense, if that makes any sense. Again, like we're rarely changing what we're doing. Like we're not guarding pistol a certain way and then, you know, wedge, wedge roll like a different way. You know what I mean? It's all the same, but it's mainly like how, does our system look like against, you know, X, Y, and Z? From a personnel standpoint, you know, tendencies are really, really important, right? You have to know 
certain things on where guys like to shoot the ball, where they like to dribble the ball, you know, things like that, where they like to pass. But again, like you're also looking at what matchups give you the best chance of staying within your defensive system. You know, don't always look at it like the five has to be on the five, you know, the one has to be on the one. You know, sometimes, you know, it's better if you have a bigger defender on the one and a smaller defender on the five for switching purposes. Just think, you know, just like things like that. So I'd say like when, when you're scouting, um, especially with quick turnarounds, you know, you're not going to be able to get deep into everything as much as you would like. But those are the main things, you know, that, that I would really be looking for. No, I love how you said that kind of you're hunting the matchups that will help you stay in your system the longest and, and make it the most concise. So I love that that idea, that mindset. When you're thinking of, of the ideal matchups, um, obviously, you know, switching and what they're running is a huge part, but maybe come playoff time when you have more time, are you ever pulling a player aside individually just to work on the specific defensive kind of techniques that they'll need based on who they're going to be guarding? Oh, I mean, you're always doing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in an 82-game season, you know, maybe it's not something on the floor, but certainly watching film. Again, like, you know, how does our system look like against this player? You know, where would you want to funnel this guy? You know, if you have opportunities to work on it pre-practice, post-practice, pre-game even, I mean, you're always, always trying to do that stuff. I worked with Grant Williams in Boston for two years, and that's something that we did often. Um, trying to get him a, a, a background of who players are in the NBA. But then also just, you know, do you need, what are the strategies you need to employ, you know, with, you know, steering a pick and roll against this guy? Like what kind of closeout do you need to do against this type of guy? Where would you want to funnel this guy on this angle of a closeout? You know, that type of stuff. And that's something that to his, you know, to his credit, he, he really, you know, bought into and, and, kept pushing me to do more and more of, and obviously, you know, he's, he's having a, a early success to his career. And he needs to, he needs to keep going though. Yes. Yes. He, he definitely had many breakout moments this past playoff season. And I know you're someone that works with guys often one-on-one and we love when guys are intrinsically motivated on the defensive side of the, side of the floor. Right. But have you ever had those players who, who weren't as motivated on the defensive end? And how do you approach those guys and workouts and really build that motivation for them? Yeah, I'd say, you know, Grant was usually was the uh, was the lone exception. Again, like he actively pursued that. Like he always wanted to work on it. He had a good understanding of, you know, how he was going to get on the floor. You know, not every guy, but a lot of the other guys was kind of a, not a, you know, kind of had to push him a little bit and, and like you said, like get them to buy into it a little bit more. With Coach Stevens, especially for younger players, you know, you were not going to play for him if you didn't defend. He had a good roster of guys, of veteran players that were established. So, you know, if you're going to come in there and not have an understanding of what you were doing defensively, you know, you just weren't going to play. He wasn't going to trust you to be in there. A lot of times what I would tell guys, whether it's in summer league or different players that I would work with is if you're going to get on the floor of a coach, you have to defend and you have to commit to this side of the ball, you know, and that like that was established by, you know, the culture that coach kind of made there, you know, like Jalen Brown, third pick in the draft, didn't play a lot his rookie year. There's a lot of veterans on that team. We were a successful team, went to Eastern Conference finals. And if he wasn't going to guard at a certain level, 
you know, he just wasn't going to get on the floor. And that just kind of built in him what he needed to do defensively and offensively. So, yeah, I'd say it was it, it's established by your head coach and, and Brad, you know, did that. And, you know, we were just were trying to echo that message that, that he kind of put out there for our guys. Yeah, no, it, it definitely stems from the top and, and what gets valued. Was there any other ways Brad communicated to the team such an emphasis on defense? I know you, you just talked about playing time and, and minutes are often king, right? But were there any other areas that really helped build that culture of defense? Well, yeah, I think it's what you said, right? Playing time. You know, again, you weren't going to play for him, especially a younger player, unless you guarded and had an understanding of uh, defensive responsibilities, right, whether it's on ball or off ball. And it was also, you know, what he emphasized. It was always the first thing that we talked about in a film session. Um, it was generally what we, the first thing that we did uh, in practice every single day. Any type of, we had, you know, split group, active warm-up type stuff where one group is on one end uh, doing an active warm-up and one group is on another end doing a basketball technique. That technique was always defense, always. So, yeah, I'd say those were the, the two main things. And then, obviously, the, you know, the players that we had, you know, it helps to have, you know, Marcus Smart, uh, obviously, you know, but, like, not just his talent, but his voice and, you know, holding guys accountable defensively. Al Horford, same thing. So, you know, I would say it was probably a combination of, uh, of those three things. You know, we had, the, we had the defensive talent, but also the defensive leadership and then the, you know, the overall defensive culture that Brad tried to establish. I can, I can only imagine I, I was talking to Marcus Smart's college coach a, a few years ago now, and he would tell me stories of how they would have to pull him aside and be like, can we limit the amount of charges you take today or loose balls you go for? Like we we don't need seven charges in our scrimmage. We we just need you healthy. Yeah. So I can only imagine the intensity there. And going back to working with players one on one, how many times are you working with that guy on a specific technique? Versus, I, I know I heard you talk about defensive reads in the past. I think it depends on time, you know, or, or setting. You know, like if you're in a big group setting, probably more, you know, anticipation read based type stuff multiple effort type stuff, visual cues, things that would help them uh, alert them to what their next responsibility was, um, things like that. And then it's more like individual based player development type stuff. You know, you might do a little bit of the same, um, but maybe more so focused on technique of, you know, you know, body position, squared stance on the ball, different types of closeouts, um, different types of slide and chest techniques, you know, things like that. So, and it depends on the setting, but we certainly try to accomplish all of those um, as much as we can. You know, I, I love that idea and concept of anticipation cues, right? Because anticipation is such a key aspect of elite defenders, right? It can really take defenders to the next level. And I'm interested if you could share maybe one example of what one of those cues would be and, and what that drill would look like. Yeah, I think, for example, like off the ball, like low man off the ball. You know, there's a, um, you know, there's a slot drive there to the rim and just that low man, number one reading, is that thing a threat? Is that drive a threat or not? So, you know, we don't want to overhelp at the rim as much as we can. The rim is the most important thing, but, you know, an uncontested layup in the NBA is 90%. If you just contest the same shot, it drops to like 50, 55%. So again, we don't want to overhelp 
at the rim. We want to not give up the rim, obviously, number one. But if it does get there, we want to play with multiple efforts and stay with that play and try to contest that shot one-on-one as much as we can. If it becomes a threat, right, that's when we have to pull in. So then the question is, is when does it become a threat or not? And for us, it would just be if the ball handler's shoulders are in front of the on-ball defender, then that ball is a threat. Right now, we have to pull in and protect the rim. If the ball handler's shoulders are within your teammate, the on-ball defender's body, right, just stay home, right, or in chat, right? So that would be one of the visual cues that we would have, right? Another one would be is, again, low man responsibility and pick and roll, right? So the big and pick and roll, you know, for an ice, if we're in a week, if we're in center field, you know, what we want to be up to start and then immediately retreat back. First step should be backwards, right, to contain the roll, to contain the pain threat, right? So off-ball responsibility there, like we have to be, you know, lane line extended or whatever, be ready to pull in. But if that man, if the roller is still in front of your the roller's defender, right, again, we can stay home. If the roller, it gets behind the roller's defender, right now we got to pull in and protect the rim. So like, again, like just different visual cues there, you know, another one would be ball hits the elbow. Generally what's going to happen in any, you know, level, but especially in the NBA is there's going to be some type of corner split, dribble handoff, you know, things like that. So ball hits the elbow, immediately get to the body in the corner. Um, to, to be ready to defend the dribble handoff or the split, however, you know, your system dictates that. But just to, like, give you the cue of, okay, ball hits the elbow, get to the body in the corner. I mean, there's a lot of other ones there um, that we would kind of talk about, but I'd say those are kind of the main, the main ones from an off-ball standpoint of what my next responsibility is. You know, th- those are great, and I love the focus on the defensive cues, the reads, and I think offensively, you know, as coaches, it, it's so natural for us to think of reads and versatility within apply design. And and so how do you balance on the defensive end those concepts of reads and, and maybe some freedom versus areas where there's maybe more rigid rules and, and precise execution? You know, I think it goes back to what we were saying about where your team is at from an experience standpoint. You know, you know if you're a younger team, you're probably more rigid trying to eliminate any gray area for them so that all they're worried about is playing with the effort that they need to play with. Um, You know, the older and older that they get, you can kind of give them a little bit more freedom. You know, like, for example, like ghost screens. Teams are always talking about, well, how do you defend this? What do you do? You know, especially for a young team, the more you emphasize, you know, we talk about steering the pick and roll, especially on switches. So literally just putting your hands on the screener and shoving the screener into the ball, essentially, you know, and and for your switches, you know, that does a few things. Number one helps you switch up on the ball and really impact it and and use switching more as a weapon. It allows your on-ball defender to get under the screen. If there is a roll, it helps with that. And then, you know, it negates any type of slip um, to the rim, to the perimeter, Anything like that, it slows down everything for the, for the defense where the offense is trying to speed defense up a little bit. You know, so to negate any type of gray area, you know, if you're going to guard a ghost screen for us, you know, we would say you're steering the pick into the pick and roll and there should be no slip out. The older you get, you know, maybe you allow them to kind of 
say, okay, on this go screen, we're going to stay at home or whatever. Um, but for a younger team, it's not like there's no gray area. We're always switching everything, uh, everything that's guard to guard, you know, one through four, whatever it is. And you eliminate, you know, any of that type of stuff. So, you know, guys would come to us and, and say, you know, well, what do you do on this type of screen where they slip out? And our response would always be, well, there is no slip out if you just do what your job is supposed to be, which is steer. It's a long-winded answer, but, you know, I think the more you uh, are rigid early, you know, you give them the habits, you give them the tools to be successful that, when you know, when they get maybe, you know, two, three years down the line, you know, they can kind of use more of their, their instincts, you know, later on. A hundred percent agree there. Eliminating gray area is so important for our players. It really frees them up to act and, and be decisive, especially when it comes to the physicality you just kind of mentioned. And I think physicality has become a, a touch button issue in basketball in the last couple of years. And yeah, there has been changes to officiate some physicality out of the game, but I also think we just don't teach it as much as we used to. And so where are areas you're looking at defensively where your teams can can get more physical and, and do so without getting completely out of position, just chucking guys? You know, I think it goes back to what we were saying about everything you're doing switching-wise is physical. Switching is not a passive defense if done, done right. Switching should be a weapon. Nick Friedman, he was my assistant in Maine. He would talk about that all the time. Um, switching is not passive it's a weapon. So whether you're steering the pick and roll, physically switching under, physically switching up, guard gets rolled to the post, um, and you want to scram that guy out or kick that guy out, whatever your terminology is, you're doing that physically. Guarding the ball, right? You can't hand check. You know, everybody talks about hand checking in the 90s, early 2000s, whatever it was. But you're still physical on the ball. You could be square. You can show your hands. But as soon as, you know, the ball tries to cross your quote-unquote plane, um, you're sliding and physically chesting the drive, you know, barrel chesting the drive, showing your hands. And you can do that without fouling, right? But it's physical. It's impactful. If there's a retreat dribble eating up that space and pressuring the ball, and again, being physical. Verticality at the rim is extremely physical. The way that you initiate your defense before screens has to be physical. You know, whether that's in pick and roll, getting into the ball, hitting the hit before you get hit uh, off the ball, whether, you know, you have good body position off the ball, but, you know, fighting through those dribble handoffs or wide pin downs early, you know, physically rerouting those cutters early so that you can fight through. Yeah, there's certainly tons of ways and reasons to be physical still defensively. You know, you have to work on those techniques. I think, you know, you're a good advocate of all that. Guys will say, you know, well, you can't guard. Now in the NBA, the NBA, you know, they want the offense to score and this and that. And I couldn't, you know, disagree, you know, more with that. Yes, they want teams to score, but the effort level and physicality is is, is extremely high uh, right now, especially when it matters, you know, in the playoffs and things like that. So yeah, nothing grinds my gears more than when a coach will tell me, you know, he he doesn't view defense in the NBA very highly, and you know, it it just what are you looking at? You know, yeah, like I, was, I don't know what those. Coaches... I was just gonna say you're you're not watching, you're not really watching what's going on in a given possession. If that's what's your, if that's what you're saying, not at all. You know, the amount of multiple efforts that these guys are playing with, it may look like it because of how much the defense is stretched now, with how great offenses are, how skilled players are, 
how well uh, you know shooting is is in the NBA right now. But that just makes it that much more difficult to guard and defend in the NBA. And these guys are amazing. They give maximum effort on defense possessions. Yeah, on night to night. So no, for sure, we are a hundred percent on the same page there. And it, it's interesting. I think you know talking about effort. Um, obviously, load management has become a, a another touch button issue you know at the professional level and even at some college levels how do you view balancing kind of you know game speed reps and and live reps in practice especially when we're talking about physicality and all that stuff versus you know just walking through it showing film how do you kind of balance that especially at the nba level where you have so many games yeah it's difficult you know i think the more you can establish again establish it early you know what you're kind of looking for whether that's in uh, August, September training camp, whatever that is, um, so that you can establish that physicality and that technique. I think the more you can do that early, the better, you know, film is a good tool, you know, in terms of this is the type of pressure that we need. This is the type of physicality that we need, you know, and, 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 you know, we do work a lot on technique, um, throughout the year and that may only be, you know, 60, 70%, but as long as they kind of get the speed of it, um, the technique of it, I think it's good. And then just maybe just stressing more of the physicality part in film, you know, in terms of like a good example of the physicality of this technique or whatever that is, or the effort that we just, it takes for this technique. You know what I mean? So the more good examples you can have of what you're looking for, I think the better. Turn off the Blackberry for a minute, turn off the Twitter, following, chasing, catching our dreams. Lock in. Lock in. Lock in, people. We're going to transition right now to a segment I like to call Lock It In, where we deep dive into a specific season. And maybe it's a season where you felt like you accomplished something tremendous, whether it's a season you took a lot from, you learned a lot from, um, or it's just a season you would like to highlight. When it comes to mind, what season do you want to talk about and lock in on? Um, I'd probably say my last season as the head coach in Maine, talking strictly defensively. You know, that was a great learning experience for me in there for those for those two years. I'd say the biggest thing that I learned defensively was, you know, my first year, year and a quarter, you know, I was trying to be really good at everything, focus on everything, um, didn't really emphasize two or three things. I emphasized, you know, everything under the sun defensively. And because of it, you know, we were always kind of average to below average from a league standpoint, you know, in our, in our stats and things like that. And it, it got to the point where let's just be good at these three things. You know, let's be really good at transition defense. Let's be really good at protecting the paint. And, you know, let's be really good at, you know, rebounding the ball or finishing possessions. So like not fouling and rebounding. Right. And it sounds amateurish or whatever but like those are the three things that we really wanted to be good at it's like yeah no duh like get back you know get back in transition you know protect the paint and and rebounds like yeah okay but like at the time i hadn't really emphasized that you know i took those three categories and gave them measurables statistically and where we rated each game uh based on where the league was at and every game, we, you know, after every game in film, film was based around those three, those things. And, and protect the paint might have been guarding your yard, individual defense. It might have been pick and roll defense because everything that we were doing defensively was based around protecting the paint. 
you know, but like just emphasize, okay, we got to protect the paint. We gave up X amount of points from a layup standpoint at the rim. We gave up threes because we didn't protect the paint well enough. Turn the ball over X amount of times. And because of it, we gave up a bunch of transition opportunities. So by the end, you know, I felt like we had a good identity of who we wanted to be. And our players could look at different stats, whether that's in a stat sheet or stats that I gave them post game and be like, okay, this is where we lost the game. This is how we won the game. Um, you know, whatever that was. So again, I just felt like trying to just be good at a few different things, um, you know, kind of really helped me and, and, and helped our team uh, get better throughout the year. Now, coach, as you're going through that transition, right, from an assistant coach who worked a lot with players one-on-one to now being a head coach, I often think about how I would view balancing time for guys to get individual development versus spending time, you know, in a full team practice. How did you kind of balance that view of, of individual development time versus team practice time? Um, again, I think it depends on what point of the year you're in. You're always having some type of player development segment prior to practice. Um, that's pretty standard in the NBA. Guys would get like 20 minutes or whatever it is, 15, 20 minutes before practice to get their stuff in. You know, so I think the more you're working on their individual development there, whether it's offensively or defensively, the better. I, th- I do think, you know, again, you've been a, a big advocate of this. I don't know the exact numbers, but three quarters of generally at three quarters of a player's game is defense you know they're not touching the ball every single time in a given possession unless you're you know Jason Tatum or you know whoever you know what I mean so I think that has to be a part of their development in some way even if it's just you know closeouts or body position simple body position stuff off the ball or simply just getting into the ball a couple times and pick and roll fighting through screens you know just touching on it a little bit again to help them get on the floor and to emphasize what your culture is, you know, like we want to defend We're, you know, we want to be a top 10 defense, things like that. Um, You know, in practice, you're always working on, you know, again, multitasking type drills, but also station work to get more individual, uh, more reps for guys, more attention to certain aspects of of what's going to be successful for you defensively on a given game. Yeah. I mean, we, we did that all the time. Yeah, we're, we're doing it now. Yeah. Does that answer your question? And I also wanted to dive into how you constructed your defensive scheme and system, the specific coverages you chose. Were you analyzing that roster you know, prior to training camp? Were you analyzing the league or what coverages worked best? Or how are you thinking when putting together that defensive system in those years? Everything I did in Maine was based on what we did in Boston, both offensively and defensively. You know, I didn't want to go away from any of that. Number one, because I really believed in our defensive system in Boston. I, and I helped kind of cultivate and, and, and helped, you know, install a lot of it, you know. So um, it was something that I really believed in. I felt like that was a great way to, to guard and, and protect the paint defensively. Um, so number one, it was something that I really believed in. A lot of what I did was evaluate our players prior to the season. Be like, okay, this is where they fit into our system defensively. You know, like, for example, we had a player named Sheldon Jeter. Great player. Played for us for a year. Played in the G League for a few years. Uh, was on USA Basketball's three-on-three team. He was like a 6'9", big, but was not a true rim protector. You know, if he wasn't going to be a rim protector... 
He needed to be somebody that could switch and contain the ball, you know, because he wasn't going to be a true drop type of center. I, again, I think it was more so about, you know, trying to find who fits where into this defensive scheme. You know, not so much this is your position. You are a switcher. You are an icing league guy, you know, whatever that is. Like, you know, like Grant Williams. Like Grant Williams can play four. He can play five. He can play three. But, you know, defensively, he's not going to be a great, great rim protector just because of his size. But he can be a good switcher based on his his, his size, his technique, his effort level defensively, his quickness, quick feet defensively. Um, and he's really kind of blossomed in that in that role in that in that environment. So, yeah, I think it was more about that than anything else. Yeah, no, I love the individual development focus that you just harped on there. And was switching the the base of your defense, and, and how does that look like installing switching? You know, day one, day two, what does that kind of look like from a switching perspective? Um, switching is just a part of our defense. I think you know, if you're going to sum it up, it was it was mainly again just protecting the paint, right? So we wanted to contain paint threats as much as we possibly could. Uh, the main way you could do that was by switching on ball actions. Um, but there were some guys that just, you know, wasn't going to be, weren't going to be able to switch, you know, and his cancer, for example, would struggle switching defensively. Right. So we'd have to maintain matchups with him, you know, as much as we possibly could. And, you know, the emphasis would, for that would be to contain the role, contain the pain threat as much as you possibly could. You know, Daniel Tice, same thing, but we wanted to maintain matchups with him, you know, as much as we could there. You know, generally, everybody else was switching. The main crux of the defense was how do you contain any type of pain threats um, at the rim? Cuts off the ball, um, pick and roll, rolls, guarding your yard. You know, I'd say you, you would install it similar to how you would install your defense overall. You know, it's mainly about what you're emphasizing there. And again, it was just about using it as a weapon, as or steering, switching up, that kind of stuff. So in terms of like the basics of, of what we were looking for there. Well, Coach, that wraps up the lock it in section. We finished the season and now we're going to transition to our more rapid fire questions to end the podcast. I'm going to give you a scenario or a topic and you're going to choose what answer you want to lock down coaches a quick break to talk about the podcast if you're enjoying this show please leave us a review on apple podcasts and if you want to stay up to date not only with this podcast but all things lockdown defense make sure to subscribe to the newsletter at lockdownhoops.com now back to the pod so coach our first question is about on ball shading right directional forces and when you're constructing your base defensive system are you thinking no middle no baseline squared up or maybe even we can focused uh yeah i mean we again we wanted to eliminate pain threats right so we, it was not no middle it wasn't no baseline it was no paint we wanted to be squared on the ball as much as we could to eliminate those straight line drives either way um, the more you can be square the more the ball, if it is going to dribble um, towards the rim, you know, would have to be more curved 
dribbles have to be more out as opposed to straight line to get around the defense. Um, and that would buy either yourself time to get back in front or your teammates time to, to shift and help in any type of way. So, no, that's great. No paint. I think that's going to be uh, the new trend now defensively team teams switching to no paint. Second question is building kind of a defensive program and, and maybe having a defensive anchor, right? You had a choice of having a great wing defender who can switch guard multiple positions. You have a chance to have a great guard defender who can pass the ball at full court if you need it, get really under guys, really pressure it, or a, a big who can swallow up you know, pain attacks and protect the rim and grab rebounds. If you had a choice of just one of those guys to construct your defense around, who were you choosing? That's a great question. You know, probably the big because the paint and the rim is so important. You know, ideally the ball doesn't get down there. That's why you have those versatile wings you're talking about. Um, guys that are able to keep the ball out of the paint, but you need guys at the rim. Um, you know, you have, you know, Marcus Smart, but you need Rob Williams at the rim, you know, same thing. Like you need Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, but, you know, you need Al Horford at the rim. So, um, yeah, I think the bigger you are at every position, the better, um, but especially at that position. Yeah, it's very hard to teach height. That is one thing. It's hard to teach. The next question, you're, you're coming towards the end of a game and, you know, you're down, you know, more than a couple couple possessions. How are you going to force more possessions um, maybe force quicker possessions. You going more towards a pressing, more more pressure on the ball. Are you going to trapping? What's kind of your end game? Need more possessions. Need to speed this game up. Yeah, it's probably the trap, right? Um, you know, whether that's when the ball crosses half court, maybe whether that's you know after a switch, you know, immediately tra- trying to trap the ball there to get the ball in the best player's hands and create more passes. Maybe create a a um, a quick shot or whatever that is, you know, I'd say it's probably I mean, anything will work, right? There'll be a lot of different uh, aspects or a lot of different ways to win a game. But for us personally, it's probably that, that quick trap, trying to get the ball on the best players and to force a quick shot from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable just kind of sending and rushing a guy from, from one, you know, from a pass away from the gap and rotating behind him? Or are you waiting for, for an on ball coverage? And, and we know those don't always come. Um, so how are you kind of mixing when to go trap? Yeah, I think that's what you said earlier about the time of the game it is. Um, you know, maybe there is no ball screen and you just want to get the ball out of the best player's hands. You know, maybe it depends on who that, uh, on you know, the ball handler is there. But yeah, whether it's a, you know, there's different ways to kind of just go and, and trap and different reasons to do it. You know, probably depends on who the guy is and, you know, what time of the game it is and what the situation is. For sure. Always situational, especially at the end of games, which brings us to kind of before I get to my last question, I did just want to talk about, you know, I I know you've you've taken over some huddles maybe at the end of games, you know, when it was your scout um, seeing some press game conferences, post game conferences, you know, what kind of goes into a end of game defensive timeout? Um, You know, are you talking about coverage? Are you expecting certain plays? Are you changing up your defense? What goes into an end-of-game defensive timeout? Um, you know, I think it's what how you can help the players in terms of what to expect. You know, ATOs, late-game ATOs is really important in the NBA. 
But, you know, if you study a lot, a lot of times, if you just know what type of alignment they're in, you have a general understanding of what they're trying to get. Um, or maybe it's even just, you know, this coach likes to do, you know, pin-ins or expect this guy to get the ball at the top of the key, regardless of what their alignment is, you know? So again, I think it's, 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 you know, we talked about anticipation. Um, it's trying to give those players some cues or what to anticipate here, what's going to come at them. You know, you're going to see Cade Cunningham at the, at the wing, ready to ice on the left wing, ready to isolate. Um, this team is in this alignment, you know, expect to pin in on the opposite side. If this guy's in the game, um, be ready for him to come to the strong side corner for an open three, you know, just things like that. You're not trying to give them all three of those, those scenarios, right? But you're probably trying to give them one based on, you know, what you've seen in the past and maybe frequency of which they've occurred in the past. No, that that's great. Bringing our discussion all the way back to those anticipation cues and, and priming our guys for success. So that brings us to our last question. We're in that last second defensive timeout. Are you sticking with your base system? Are you maybe junking it up with a, a new coverage or a heavy denial? Or perhaps you're going, you're changing your defenses. You're going to that Brad Stevens end of game zone. I know he likes. So, chance to win the game here, Coach. What are you locking down? Um, that's a great question. You know, Brad kind of took the lead on all that stuff. Coach Casey, I'm sure will as well on what exactly we'll do. We'll have suggestions and things like that. You know, me personally, like I would, you know, you know, down three. Um, you're probably switching everything on and off the ball or up three rather, excuse me, right? You're trying to probably switch everything on and off the ball to take away that three-point shot. I would probably try to put in all of my best defensive players in. If you are switching, it would be your best perimeter players, your five best perimeter players to switch. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Coach had his own. It was, it was outstanding. Probably lean on doing that a lot depending on situation and circumstance. So, yeah. So, Coach, let's see. I think you're either going switching or to that zone, and, and either way you're kind of keeping everything in front of you. But let's see. Shot goes up, and it was the right call, Coach. You've won the game. Defensive stop. So we'll get you out of here <laughs> with our last. Oh, I didn't realize that was a real situation. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> Off the rim. Good thing we got the rebound. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Coach, so much for, for joining the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure picking your brain and Wanted to wrap up the podcast by just asking, what is your favorite coaching memory or moment? Oh, man. You know, I, I don't know if I can pin it on one specific moment. Um, I'd say it's more the people that I've worked for and worked with, you know, whether that's Coach Rivers and his staff, um, you know, Mike Longobardi, Ty Lu, Jamie Young, Armand Hill, Kevin Eastman, um, Anne-Marie Laughlin. Um, you know, Brad, Brad and his staff, Brad, Micah, Jay Laranaga, again, Jamie Young, um, Rod Adams, Darren Ehrman, Walt McCarty, uh, Jerome Allen. Jerome is unbelievable. The video staff, Matt Reynolds, Kenny Graves, I mean, Evan Brads, Alex Barlow. I can go on and on. The, the people that I've worked with and, and worked for, um, have put me in a position to, to be where I am today. They've been like family to me. That's made all the, the great moments like that much better, you know, um, doing it together, you know, working with them. 
you know, I don't want to get super sappy or whatever, but um, yeah, I'd say, you know, the moments are great, but what makes the moments really good is, you know, doing it with people that you really, you know, really care about. Thank you for listening to the Lockdown Podcast. Make sure to hit those notifications, those subscribe buttons, so you get alerted when the next podcast comes out. If you want to know more about Lockdown products, head to LockdownHoops.com. And if you want to get in contact with the show, email LockdownDefensePod, that's P-O-D, at gmail.com. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Lockdown.